You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. It's now time for us to turn our attention backwards. I guess we already were with radio. But as we remember another year moving on this time to 2002. Did you have anything to say about 2002? I have a lot of things to say about 2002. Okay. Uh, but I think I've got I've got a take. Uh-huh. But I, I want to hear about 2002 in sports first before I deliver the take. Well, let's start by talking about the Sonics, because 2002 is an important year in Sonics franchise history, and that's because they hired me as an intern. <laughs> oh, my. So, so, oh. so this is when it all started to go down. <laughs> no, no, it went up for they, it. they hired you as an intern, and five years later, the team would be moved. Six. Six it's years later. Six. I don't think you draw direct, direct connection there. Uh, so the 2001-02 so- season was a, a kind of fun season, I think. The Sonics took the Spurs to five games in the first round. Uh, that was, you know, the f- first playoff series since 2000. Uh, you know, they'd been out of the playoffs for a year. I I have fond memories of the 2001-02. I don't know, to, team, I don't know about you. No recollection whatsoever. I mean, that was the first team that, like, I was following, really following day in and day out because of the fact that I was writing for SonicCentral.com at that point. It so was, it was a year where... Who was... It was Desmond Mason a rookie, or...? It was his second year. We mentioned last week that Vlade Radmanovic was drafted oh. in 2001, along with Earl Watson was a rookie on that team, and Peja Drobniak, who was also acquired wow. through the draft. Wow, Drobniak's maniacs. Uh, Jerome James arrived in Seattle. So, so this was sort of... the center much of the season. Was this the year that they traded GP, or had they already traded GP? Neither of those. GP was on that team, and then kind of got worked over by Tony Parker in that San Antonio series. <clears throat> As a very, very young Tony Parker, right? He was like he was 19-year-old Tony Parker. He was Parker. 19, yes. So we haven't got... GP was traded in 2003? He was traded in 2003. Really? Yeah. It does not seem like it was that late. Okay. But we started seeing sort of the, the outline... Of the 0405 Sonics team that we both cared so much about. So maybe, you know, again, aside from hiring me, the most important thing that happened in the Sonics in 2002 is they traded Vin Baker. Yep. Things had not been going well. Every year, kept hoping that this is going to be the year that he gets back to the old Vin Baker, but uh, uh, his his struggles with alcoholism uh, were a major factor in preventing that from happening. And then the uh, the Celtics somewhat inexplicably traded Kenny Anderson, Vitaly Potapenko, and the immortal Joe Forte to the Sonics. <laughs> the immortal Joe Forte. <laughs> or Vin Baker. We love Joe Forte in, in and college, too. Oh, I thought he was a star. I was very convinced. And so I was quite excited when he was in this trade, and then not so excited when he eventually played for the team. Oh, my God. Who was I thinking of? I was thinking of Antonio Daniels the other day. Antonio or there... Daniels? Antonio Daniels is one of the most underrated players in NBA history. That's probably true. I mean, I would nominate friend of the pod, Brent Baker. Brent Baker. Brent Barry. Brent, Brent Baker. <laughs> uh, water bottle. The word is water bottle. So, <laughs> you actually were looking for the word bottle? 
well, previously I was, in 2002, that 2102 season, uh, Brent Perry led the NBA in two-point percentage, Bones. effective field goal percentage, which he had also done in 2000, and possibly true shooting percentage as well, yes. Back when he, I was coining the term true shooting percentage. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> if, if, if Bones would have played in 2019, not 2020, of course, because basketball doesn't exist anymore, uh, he would be like a borderline star. Yeah. I'm not sure who would be the Brent Berry-like player of today, like hyper-efficient in a fairly small role. You don't think it's Jage? He's not JJ Redick is not quite as hyper efficient as Brent Berry is. So Brent Berry is better than JJ Redick. I think probably a little bit better, yeah. I mean, he was good. Like JJ like, Redick shoots too many long twos. Brent Berry already was way ahead of his time in terms of only threes and dunks. Shorter three point line at the time too. Uh, no, they They'd moved it. Long moved it back by that point. Wait, really? They haven't moved it since. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it moved out to back to its current distance, which was its original distance after the 97 season, I believe. Wait, really? I thought they moved it again. No. You're thinking uh, of college basketball. Well, whatever. Uh, so who is the starting lineup for that team? You have GP. You have, you have Bones. Yep. Richard Lewis at the three. Oh, wow. Richard. Vin at the four, although they went on a major run when Vin Baker was injured. And uh, and then Potapenko? No, Potapenko didn't get there until the following summer. Jerome James and Art Long started at center. <laughs> Art Long, who once punched a horse. That's uh, correct. Allegedly, <laughs> actually. Literally everything I know about Art Long is that potentially at Cincinnati he punched a horse. <laughs> but so this was... Really, I mean, like, you remove some very big elements. But, like, by the time you get to 2005 the role players are in place, right? Like, these are going to be the role players who are going to be important factors to that 2005 team. Yep. I mean, really the next year, I guess, with the, the Peyton trade, but we will get to that. But th- this, at the same time, was like, it was a mostly forgettable season. They didn't have a good draft pick. They were they were the 8th seed when they lost to the Spurs, or the 7th seed? Uh, they were the, I think they were the 7th seed. They were the seventh seed and lost to the Spurs. You said they pushed them to five games, which means they won a game. Although partially because Dim Duncan missed game four to attend the funeral of one of his parents. So they won a game that Tim Duncan no, they didn't play. No, they won two games to force it to five. It was best of five still, though. Oh, well, Jesus Christ. The three-point line is long. And the <laughs> series are short. Uh, so they, they pushed them to a deciding game five. Oh, also, we should tell a story about the draft here. So the Sonics did not have a first-round pick that season. Uh, I forget where they had traded it exactly, but they did not have a first-round pick. They only drafted in the second round. And so I'm, like, sticking around through the draft through pick 50-something, and uh, I desperately wanted the Sonics that year to draft Reggie Evans out of Iowa. Oh, God, you loved Reggie Evans. I did. I mean, he's <laughs> such an amazing rebounder. And... Uh, the 
I was kind of excited because the pick they showed they didn't actually show the Sonics pick, and then they showed Darius Singala who went with the next pick to Boston. I was excited about Darius Singala too, but it turned out instead the Sonics had drafted a German big man named Peter Faza, who uh, <laughs> never never even sniffed the NBA. But then they signed Reggie Evans as an undrafted free agent, and Reggie Evans was the very first person I ever interviewed in my life wow. at Sonics Media Day that year. Uh. Was did Moneyball exist at this point? Right? Had the book come out yet? No, the book came out in the spring of two thousand three. The concept existed though, right? Had people been talking about like statistical analysis? Well, obviously statistical analysis, but like people who were really good at one particular thing, right? Where it was like Kevin Euclid was the Greek god of walks, and. <clears throat> Reggie Evans was kind of the Greek god of rebounds. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far. But yeah, I mean, that concept probably became bigger in the subsequent few years where it was just like, hey, whoever the best rebounder is in college basketball, draft that guy because there's a decent chance he's going to be pretty good. Because like Paul Millsap was that kind of rebounder in college. Well, it's like your options are I could draft Peter Faja, who's probably not good at anything. You know, you could draft somebody who's average at every single thing there is, which means that in the NBA, they'll be bad at every single thing there is. Or you could draft somebody who has one particular skill, and they will probably still be good at that in the NBA. I mean, rebounding in particular, just because that was one that translated particularly well to the NBA. But, of course, you can draft Peter Faza and then get Reggie Evans as an undrafted free agent, and that's actually probably the way to play yeah, it. That, that's value right there. You get Peter Faza and Reggie Evans. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so this, this doesn't change my perspective about 2002. Uh, <laughs> we should talk about the Mariners, who had their last winning season for a while. Uh, they went 93 and 69, but faded a little bit. If I recall this was down the stretch, and this was the first the year of the streak, though. Correct. And wow. I, so my memory of the 2002 Mariners is uh, our mom had entered. I think I was the one who technically won uh, a contest to attend their last road series of the season in Anaheim. Wow. And so. I think we only went to one of the three games. We mostly just went to Disneyland, but went to the game on Saturday that they uh, that they lost 8-4 to the Anaheim Angels, who I believe Great. that was the year that Anaheim went on to win the World Series, right? Yeah, it was. There was a World Series in Anaheim? There sure was. <laughs> okay. It was Anaheim versus uh, the Giants in that one. Wow. That was like the rally monkey era. You remember that? Oh, man, that is... Anna, Anaheim versus the Giants is gone from my mind. <laughs> if, I, if I knew it at any point, we used to watch, oh my god, what was Channel One, right? Yep. We used to watch Channel One every morning, and I remember, I think it was this year, where I was like, I feel like we watched it even in high school, Channel One. And there would be like 15 minutes of news as told by like 20-somethings. Oh, but some of them went on to become big stars. I know. I'm trying to think of who was Anderson on Cooper there. on Channel One. <laughs> I think Anderson Cooper might have been on Channel One. I am. I am very confident. Uh, there, there see. were a couple of like pretty big names, former anchors. Here we go. Yeah, there's Anderson Cooper, Serena Ulchel. Remember her? Oh my yeah. god. Lisa Ling. Oh yeah, I definitely remember watching Lisa Ling on Channel One. Maria uh, Menuenos. <laughs> and 
I remember them talking about the World Series, and I was like, hmm, okay, that's who's playing in the World Series. Cool. <laughs> like, I was so uninformed about baseball that I learned about it from Channel One News, <laughs> which is like, if you're learning about any news from Channel One, like, you have to be the least informed person on Earth. <laughs> I don't have any thoughts about the 2002 Mariners other than that memory. But that also intersects with the 2002 Seahawks. Really? Because we were flying back from, uh, it was probably John Wayne Airport on the Sunday night. You think you flew into Burbank? John Wayne. That's not Burbank. John Wayne is in Orange County. Oh, are you sure about that? Yeah, it's Bob Hope Airport. Oh, Bob Hope is Burbank, of course. Yeah. And the Seattle Seahawks were playing on Sunday night football against the Minnesota Vikings after getting off to an 0-3 start. And I remember flying over what was then Seahawks Stadium, now CenturyLink, and not know, having any idea what was happening in the game. Uh, yeah, the information was, is not available to you on an airplane in 2002, not, unless the pilot tells you the score. Yes. <laughs> maybe, the maybe only source did. of information to you is the pilot... <laughs> <laughs> via flight control or whatever, like the, nobody was getting information otherwise. They don't have Do up-to-date newspapers on the plane in 2002. So we mentioned on last week's pod, Sean Alexander's penchant for big games in night games on national TV. And that game had four touchdowns, including wow. an 80 yard pass from Trent or five touchdowns. I should say ran for four, caught an 80 yard pass from Trent Dilfer. Trent Dilfer is still the quarterback. Still the quarterbacks. The Seahawks won that one. 48 to 23. Wow, they still let Matt Hass benched? Uh, I Matt Hass started most of that season, so I'm not sure what what exactly was going on at that, that point. That is I guess so strange. Hass was definitely healthy, but I guess it was because they started 0-3. Maybe that's the answer. The, it's like the part of the Matt Hasselbeck era, which I think we all look back on Matt Hasselbeck extremely fondly and as a very good quarterback. Oh, for sure. But the part of the Matt Hasselbeck era that we don't think about, which we talked about this last week, but like he didn't play that much for these first two years. Even after they traded a second-round draft pick for him. I mean, he played. But, like, we weren't convinced that Matt Hasselbeck was going to become a... And I don't know if he ever became a star quarterback, but, like... He did. That yeah. Matt Hasselbeck was going to become a, a Super Bowl-caliber quarterback. So he did not take back over. He started week one. And then... Uh, yeah, then did not start the next six games, did not take back over as the starter until week eight. But by the end of that season, you started to see it. He threw for 362 yards against Kansas City in a 39-32 win, 427 yards against San Francisco in a 31-24 loss, and then 449 yards in a 31-28 win at San Diego in the season finale. (laughs) Also, this was the year Jeremy Stevens started playing for the (laughs) season. You sure uh, th- this this was for that first era of Seahawks success. Also, Dallas Cowboys defensive coordinator Chris Richard um, for the Seahawks. If you take that first era of success in the last two decades and compare it to this current success period, this was their 2008. Is that right? Uh... This wasn't the year that they made the playoffs and beat the Saints. This was the next, the Traveris Jackson year. That was 2008, no, right? 2011. Oh, sorry, 2011. This yes, was, that this is was what their that is. 2011. It was like, you, you weren't, they weren't quite good enough to make the playoffs, but by the end of the season, you were like, this is a team, and they have the, 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 
general outline of a team that can be an extremely successful team. They won and, the last three games of the regular season, and Corin Robinson was coming into his own. We talked about him last week as a rookie. 78 catches for 1,240 yards this season and five touchdowns. I love this offseason <laughs> additions and subtractions. Brandon Mitchell and Jerry Wunsch, <laughs> those were the additions. I'm pretty sure that Jerry Wunsch was a cast member on Law and & Order. And then, <laughs> and then they lost Charlie Rogers RAP in the expansion draft. Yeah. And then the Texans actually just traded him uh, for a seventh-round pick. So, so not the again, most memorable Seahawks season. Things were starting to move, but if you were to ask me about any specific game from the season, I do not remember it. <clears throat> wow, Jeff George is the backup quarterback? Well, no. He would have been the third straighter. After Jeff Kelly? For the Seahawks? Oh, well, did did Dilbert yeah. get released? No, I don't think so. Maybe he finished the season on IR. That's why he's not on the Wikipedia page. That would make sense. Also, this running back depth, they just had Sean Alexander and then two fullbacks? No, they had Marcus Morris. Or Maurice Morris, I should say. Oh, Mo Morris? Where is he? Yeah. I don't know, but I see, I see him on they the They did draft Mo Morris. We page. loved him, too. Even, oh, even, even having gone to Oregon, we were like, we're all in on Mo Morris. <clears throat> Liked him long before he uh, dated one of my close friends. Great. Uh... 2002 Huskies football team, rough season, with one with maybe the best Seattle sports highlight of 2002 besides trading Vin Baker. Uh, finished that season That's seven. And, trading Vin Baker is the highlight. It was a very exciting moment <laughs> at that point, and we're being honest here. Uh, finished that season seven and six, four and four in Pac-10 play. Lost the Sun Bowl to Purdue. Uh huh. But so they, they played did, Purdue in back-to-back years. No, the two out of three. Okay. That was 2000 was the uh, the Rose Bowl. Re- big fall for both teams from the Rose Bowl to the Sun Bowl. Uh, okay, so that season starts they with lost, the g- Both teams lost their starting quarterbacks. Yeah, but the Huskies were actually pretty good in 2001. 2002 <clears> was a pretty big disappointment. They came into the season ranked 11th in the country, and they're playing at number 13 Michigan in a rematch of the previous year's matchup in Seattle, a game that the Huskies should have won but lost in large part because they were called for 12 men on the field on a Michigan punt, I believe. I thought then, it was a field goal. Or maybe you, maybe it was a field goal and they went on to score a touchdown. It was definitely a special teams play. And they came back and hit the field goal. They missed it the first time. Okay. And then we had 12 men on the field and then they came back and hit it and that's how they won the game. I mean, that checks out. And it was devastating at the time. It was. I mean, they turned out to not be that good of a team long-term through the season. But, like, this was also Peter Clay Carroll's first year at USC, right? That sounds right. And so they went into Carson Palmer's USC. And that that was when I think things started really falling apart. Was the big No, loss this wasn't his first season. This was his second season as head coach. This is the year they really started clicking, though. That was the year that they went to the Orange Bowl. <sighs> okay, so what was the memorable moment from that year? The memorable moment was the Apple Cup. Uh, Jason, Jason Gesser's Washington State Cougars. 
This is the the twelve. He's now, he's 12 now men talking, penalty. talking coogs, Jason. This Messer. is the twelve men, men penalty moved them into field goal range. Ah, uh, okay. They had not previously made a field goal, in th- they had previously missed three field goal attempts in the game. Oh, Very reminiscent of Oregon two years ago, I think. Right? That would, Oregon couldn't make a field goal, and then ended up making that game winner in overtime. They hit, anyway. they hit the field goal to send it to overtime. Oh, right. And then we lost because they scored a touchdown You'd have missed the field goal. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was not, not great. Uh, okay, okay. Oh, so this was the Northwest Championship season. Oh, so God. the Huskies were four and five. They were three and f- three and f- or two and four in Pac-12, Pac-10 play. No, they had to have been worse than that. They had to have been one and four in Pac-10 play. Yeah, they had uh, they had only beaten one team that was not San Jose State, Wyoming, or Idaho through week 10 of the season or game number 10 at least and then they run off back to back to back wins home versus oregon oregon state at oregon a uh there they, there was one other win in there but there were going to be a lot of other wins at oregon and then the apple cup against number three wazoo which was still holding out outside hopes of getting into the bcs championship game is an undefeated team and win that one in <clears throat> double over ten time, I think. They weren't undefeated, were they? Oh no, they were. They had their one final loss. record was ten and three, so they couldn't yes, have lost twice after that. They did have one loss coming into that one, but they were ranked number three in the country, so they had an outside chance of getting into the uh, BCS. So this was the three overtime game, uh, really one of the most legendary games in the whole Apple Cup history. Yeah. I thought you had Huskies more. Huskies hang on. No, Huskies hang on. And, and Wazoo's... I mean, this might have been the best Wazoo team of the last two decades, right? It's, like, yeah, I guess the well, the last two decades would cut off the Ryan Leaf team, so... And that's, yes. that's the only other option, is that Leaf team that went to the Rose Bowl and played against Michigan, but like... I mean, these are probably the two best... I, I don't know anything about, like, the ancient... They're certainly the two best Wazoo teams of our lifetimes. And... Having the Huskies, the last time that Wazoo was a really good team, right? I mean, since then, they've had some good seasons, but they, I don't think they've ever been this good. And having those hopes be dashed by the Huskies in Pullman is so poetic. <laughs> I, right? I, I vividly remember that night because the Sonics were playing in Dallas. And so I was flipping back and forth between that Sonics game because I believe the Mavericks were still undefeated at that point of the season. Uh, On November 23rd? Off, yeah, they had gotten off to an extremely good start that year. I guess the season started later then. I also vividly remember like referencing that they were the only thing hotter than Halle Berry in the new Bond movie. That was, that was <laughs> Die <great>. another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, that win, that win moved them to 13-0 and in the season. They won one more game and then eventually lost their 15th. This was Nash and Nowitzki? Yep. Or did they, they had, they had Nash at the time? They still did, yes. And they were playing uh, a lot of zone defense. Oh, wow. Modern. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but, but it was, it was like, this is the ultimate example of cooking it. This is what it is. Like, this is having an opportunity I, to beat your biggest rival in your house to go to the Rose Bowl. And fucking it up. Well, they did and still go to the Rose Bowl. They had to beat UCLA the next week. Now, 
if you're a Cougar fan, you would turn this around and say, having all the talent that UW did on their team and going seven and six is a much greater example of Cougar Net. I guess so. There's no cooking it though. Cooking it is having an opportunity in your hand and then not being able to execute on it. And okay, then the UW Michigan game. Oh, UW probably has their own version of that, which is underachieving with talent, especially in the early 2000s. Ah, that but was the like, Nate Robinson game. I forgot about Nate Robinson playing football that year. Ah, wow, Nate Robert cornerback before Husky basketball was any good. Yeah. So it was 2003 when Husky basketball turned around. So 2002 was the year that Bob Bender got fired. The last of the Romar era. So Romar's first year was the year that they made the tournament and played no, against. No, Romar. Romar's first year they went. They were ninth in the Pac-10. They were oh, so, so it was Nate Robb's second year playing basketball that they got good. The Arizona game. Yes. Okay. And his first year playing basketball full time because in his freshman year he only joined the team after the. Uh, the football season. Can you imagine somebody with, man, Pete Carroll must have been disgusted when he saw Nate Robinson playing cornerback across the field from him. <laughs> he was like, his his arms are how long? No way. <laughs> He's how tall? <laughs> uh, Lorenzo Romar was like the Huskies, I don't know, probably like fourth or fifth choice, I think, in their coaching search that year after they fired Bob Bender. They really, Did this happen in 2002? Can we talk yeah. about this? Yeah. Can we can me. talk about this in earnest. Okay. Yeah, we can talk about it right now. Uh, they really, I think, if I recall correctly, wanted to hire Dan Monson. <sighs> who had been at Gonzaga previously and then had gone to, Michi- uh, to Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. Uh, so they won Monson. I mean, Bob Bender had, had, he, he had the highest heights that Husky basketball had had in a while. There's no history to the program at all. Really, there still wow. isn't. But, like, it's not a prestigious program. History, but, yes. Nobody's like, oh, the UW program. It's different than football, right? They haven't won two national championships. No. Um, so it's depending the, like, on who you were, ask. They were good for large stretches of the Marv Harshman era, including the Detlef Schrempf Christian Velp teams, including with Romar as a player. But then the coaches that succeeded Marv Harshman were awful until Bender, who was okay. Yeah, and Bender had some good years. They were they showed that highlight now that SportsCenter is just showing classic. They showed the Rip Hamilton game, and I was like – Fuck you, Scott Van Pelt. Um, <laughs> you know what? For this reason and only this reason, I wish they were still playing basketball. Um, but uh, bringing in Lorenzo Romar ushered in a new era for Husky basketball. And for like, sure. there, there was no better hire that they could have made. I mean, we talked about this on when he was unfortunately fired. Lorenzo Romar is probably the second best basketball coach in UW history. You're saying after Harshman? Yeah, or maybe even ahead of Mar- Marv Harshman. I would put him ahead myself. And ahead of Marv Harshman. I mean, the, the names that came through in the Lorenzo Romar era are extremely impressive. And he really put UW basketball on the map in a way that it hadn't been. And I think the city of Seattle which I think the 90 Sonics deserve a lot of credit for making Seattle a basketball town, but like Lorenzo Romar capitalizing on that and continuing to make Seattle a basketball town after that, like the amount of talent that comes out of Seattle that's playing in the NBA currently is unheard of from what we grew up with. Okay. These are not necessarily all people they actually went went with, but would you like to 
read a list of candidates when oh Bob Bender got fired. Uh, Gonzaga coach Mark Few, Missouri's Quinn Snyder, Rhode wow. Island native. Romar was the third person mentioned. I mean, those are like those first two are extremely good coaches. Stan Heath, never heard of. Uh, Dana Altman. Wow. Ben Howland. <laughs> oh man. And Dennis Felton, who was at Western Kentucky. So a lot of those coaches actually turned out to be very yeah, they good coaches. They could have done just fine with a few of those, but uh, obviously, I mean, we're very, very glad that they chose Lorenzo Romar. It worked out quite wow, well. Dana Altman. Yeah. Interesting. But also, we just love Lorenzo Romar and always will. Yeah. And especially so, after this UW season. It it is. This is <laughs> not uh, Hopkins' fault. Apparently, Quinn uh, Snyder did turn down the job. He was at Missouri at the time and turned it down. Yep. I mean, I don't know if UW at that time was a better job than Missouri. I don't know if it's a better job now. Was 2002? I think it was 2003 was the year of the first battle in Seattle that Missouri played, and that was a lot of fun. But this was one of the few positives that came out of the year 2002, which leads me to 2002 in music. Okay, wait, wait, hold on. We have one more <laughs> oh, sports okay, topic okay. to discuss. And we haven't gotten to them yet because they weren't part of our lives. The Seattle Storm. I mean, I guess we discussed LJ a little bit last week. 2002 was the first year I started following the Storm because uh, I had gotten connected through uh, Dean Oliver, the the godfather of basketball statistics. Wow. More name dropping. Yeah, going to be a lot of that. Uh, not a lot. No, I don't know what more there's going to be. Uh, there was this project to track defensive stats for Dean at all the WNBA games, and I volunteered to do it at the Storm games and got a press credential uh, because one of Dean's friends was the the WN, worked uh, in PR in the WNBA and still does, and is is a friend of mine as well. Uh, I I won't mention him because you would call that name dropping. <laughs> I don't, no one would know the name. <laughs> John Maxwell. There, there you go. Wow. Uh, John, I had to do it. I had to do it. John yeah. Maxwell. Yeah. We're all impressed. <laughs> so it was very exciting because this is the first time I'd ever had a media credential. It was before, you know, I get getting hired by the Sonics as an intern that fall. And, uh, you know, I come in not really knowing much about the WNBA. Like I'd heard of Sue Bird, obviously, uh, who was the number one pick that year after UConn went undefeated. She led maybe the most talented women's basketball college team ever. Although I'm sure the Stewie-led teams would give it, give you a run for that one as well, because Swin Cash was also on those teams. They had four players drafted, and I think the first six picks, and then the fifth starter was Diana Taurasi. So they were they were pretty damn good. Uh, and it took me precisely two games to like fall in love with Sue's game and the WNBA and have been a big fan and supporter ever since. So the Storm that year started off kind of slowly, but caught fire in the second half of the season, and then, then, no pun intended, faced a kind of a must-win game, almost loser-out game, against the rival Portland Fire in the second-to-last game of the uh-huh. season. And Sue scored like 33, I think it was her career high at that point, to beat the Fire. Uh, the Storm beat Utah in their next game to secure a playoff spot. They then got quickly swept by the L.A. Sparks out of the playoffs. Uh, but that that is a... Uh, that was a lot of fun to start watching the storm. And then also one of my defining memories of 2002, I hadn't thought about this in a long time. That playoff game I went to, uh, game one against the Sparks, I was still dealing with the after effects of us having our wisdom teeth out at the same time. <laughs> oh, my God. 
my god. Which, I, put, I just put the blanket over my face. It, wow! It hit you so much more than it did me for whatever reason. You didn't have effects of it? I That was like... We had our teeth out probably on oh Monday. Oh my god. Monday or Tuesday. And that game was on Thursday and I was able to go to it. And I feel like you were just like still on the couch at that point we went to black angus and you ate at black angus or whatever that like, was my pretty basically my first solid food since and then. i was like ah oh, fuck i guess i have to also oh I black like, angus i was like if al's gonna eat at black angus i need to also man 2002 was bad okay so <laughs> basically okay here's my take 2002 was the worst year of my entire life i are you familiar with 2020? Not personally. This is not personally. This is just objectively speaking. We can't judge a year while we're in it. It's not like I had a bad I, I 2002 feel like personally. we can judge this year. What's going to happen Looking the rest back, of this year? Look, well, at least we'll remember it, right? It's going like, to offset the global pandemic. Blank. And then yeah, on top okay. of that, I couldn't remember anything. And then you're like, oh, and you got your wisdom teeth taken out. That, that was, like, really the most memorable thing that I thought about it. Oh, okay, I think there is no question that 2002 is the most forgettable year of our lifetime. It's terrible! It is terrible! Like, I went through the film, the, the movies that were released in 2002, the music that was released that in 2002. Music? Because 2002 I, in film is, like, it's the shitty sequel that nobody wants. I right? just kept like, scrolling down, and it was like, what? I mean, there were, there were some... some good movies probably that were released in 2000 there were some good movies that were released in 2002 but nothing that i would have paid attention like to at the Scooby-Doo time like scooby-doo the movie what are the good movies that were released in 2002 first off did scooby-doo the movie come up previously no no i don't think so this was the year that brought us gold member like 2002 is a bad year even i will stand as much as anybody for the star wars prequels but this even had the most objectively bad star wars prequel this gave us this was the year that gave us hayden christensen's acting right <laughs> like 2002 is a bad year uh i feel like the first born movie is like something i guess so i don't care about the first born movie do you? No, but other people do. Sure. It's fine. I remember at the time being – I thought Gangs of New York was pretty cool. I learned who Daniel Day-Lewis was at the time. Uh, I thought – I remember distinctly going going to see Chicago and being like, oh, yeah, that movie was awesome. But it's just like none of the – I'm just like, is The Born Identity a classic movie? 2002 Adaptation? fucking sucks. 2002 is the worst year. It was it was a bad year. Uh, you did, haven't mentioned Eight Mile, which was a very okay, wait, important wait, wait, film. Okay, wait, We haven't talked about 2002 in music yet. Well, it's it's a movie. I don't know if you're aware of it. All right, but but it's not. It's not a movie. It gave us Barbershop, though. So there is that. Thanks, 2002. Um, also, all about the Benjamin starring Mike Epps. I'm just like this was the year that the worst of all the sequels came out of every film series. Yeah, Men in Black too. It was all. It was all two, right? It was number two of so many things. It was Lord, Lord of the Rings, of the Rings. two. It was yeah. Harry Potter two. It was Star Wars two. Uh, original was... Spider Man. It was that first Spider Man, which that, is that's, a, a that's big hit, but also it's upside not like, down kiss, right? Yeah, that that was a meme before memes existed. It really was. Okay, so I was looking at 2002 in music, and I'm just like, I thought last week as like the 2002 is when it's all going to happen. No. 
It didn't happen. Did not happen. 2002 is a terrible. There is no. There's one artist who released their best record in 2002, and I'll talk about them in a second. But like, it, this is just like artists releasing their most forgettable music happened in the year two. And maybe this is a 9/11 hangover or something. I don't know how it all coalesced to being like 2002 is going to be a shitty year for everything and i personally think that this is the year that caused that really was the catalyst for a whole generation of people becoming quote-unquote indie because of how bad 2002 was in mainstream music but i i do have to say an album that i care still care so much about and remember this is the first real foray into being indie right i was like i like the strokes that's still a major label release. And I'm not going to say that this isn't. It's a quasi-major label release, but like, and I bought it at Best Buy. But I think I got like, not sick or whatever, but I remember it was a really long winter, and I had like a CD, a three-CD changer next to maybe a one-CD changer next to my bed in a lawn chair. And I just remember it being a really long winter, and I got... A CD that year, which actually came out in maybe I actually got this in 2003 uh, because of how far behind. Because I think it came out in it came out in August. I think I might have gotten it in 2003. Uh, but the record "Turn on the Bright Lights" by Interpol, and it's like there is it is unparalleled in the amount that it changed my life. Really, the Interpol record. It was wow. like. I remember turning it on and just being like, what the fuck is this? You know, it was like, and if you knew who the influences were, you would recognize them. But 17-year-old me had no idea who they were. But also, as far as encapsulating mood, or as like, that early 2000s in New York sounds like Turn on the Bright Lights. <laughs> Especially because I... would you know? Ne- never went there but no it was just like this this is to me if i had to like if you had to paint a picture of what it sounded like to be in new york city in the sort of like kind of like bleak time period post 9 11 it's like that is interpol right and it's it's this time period where there are all these cool young kids who are trying to establish themselves i mean there's a fucking book about this period in new york music right Mm -hmm. and like that book the Strokes Matter. That book is called. Wait, is it called Meet Me in the Bathroom? Yes, that book is called Meet Me in the Bathroom. Uh, Rebirth and Rock and Roll <laughs> in New York City. Uh, but this is like 2001 to 2011. It was like it started with Is This It? But really, the first Interpol record was like, it changed my life completely. Like, I had no idea what indie music was at the time, but this was music that wasn't aggressive. It was all about mood. And it wasn't like, it wasn't about hooks. It wasn't about fucking guitar solos. It was just like, this makes you feel like you're in a certain place. And I don't think that any of the important indie records that came after it, which none of them came out in 2002, because it was a terrible fucking year, could have happened without this album it also came out on an actual indie label in matador records and i was so indie at the time that i remember going and buying it at best buy (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, can we talk about Eight Mile now? Okay, but just one one more second on this. Right. But like to this day, I will still turn it on. I'm just like, I will, I fucking stand for Turn on the Bright Lights by Interpol. But it was like, I would get the inserts, the Best Buy ad in the newspaper every Sunday and look through. They would have CDs for like six ninety nine or seven ninety nine or whatever. I mean, there was tons that I got during that period for about that price, and it was like the paranoid by black sabbath i was like what's this i was like maybe i should just buy that at six dollars or whatever you know and then somehow they got the distribution matador had the distribution to be in the best buy ad and again i think i got it in like january of 2003 so i'm giving this credit to 2002 which it doesn't deserve but like i remember listening to it that winter i was playing madden a ton yep madden 04 probably i guess 03 uh i think mike vick was on the cover and just i was playing madden a ton being depressed and listening to interpol and i was like this is this time. is my life six months and uh, it was marshall great Falk was and on we the cover loved it 03. oh i remember that yeah i remember marshall falk and that rams jersey it was, it was madden 04 that vick was on uh then later that year the only artist to release their best music, not their best album, but their best music in 2002. We all got together. I think this was you, me, Katie, and Chris. And we went to the fucking Lewis and Clark, right? I don't specifically remember this. You don't remember this? No. I think it was over Christmas break. We went to, I'm pretty sure it was Lewis and Clark. Maybe it was Parkway Plaza. And we went to go see Eight Mile. And we came home, and all we wanted to do was rap battle. <laughs> I do think there was some attempt at rap battle. Oh, dear. Uh... <laughs> it was all you could do after seeing that movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, so Eminem. You're, you're going with Lose Yourself is the best Eminem? Well, I actually think Till I Collapse is the best Eminem song. But... Till I Collapse is the one that they used to play at Husky Games, right? Yes. Yeah. That is that there was like, but but from an outside Till I Collapse is an excellent song. From an outside perspective, though, of like just what it meant, Eminem had reached his peak with "Lose Yourself," right? Like he will never ever be better than that. When he took the the whole premise of the movie and then the verse where he's like, "Fuck that, this didn't exist" or whatever. There's no Mackay Pfeiffer. The, there's no Mackay Pfeiffer that get like gets me every time. And you're it's, just like, there is no, "This is no you're movie." In the moment, no you're Pfeiffer. in the moment, and then you're just like, you're just like, "Holy shit!" You're saying Eminem just you lose he, yourself. He no, he ruled. He was like, "This movie doesn't exist. Here's where we are. This is my real life, right?" And you're like, he is on another level as far as what he's talking about. Right? Yeah. Okay, so there are two 2002 albums that I have listened to within the past two weeks. Do you, want, you care to guess what those two albums are? Wow, I have no idea. I don't think I could. I looked through them, but... Oh, I had one more album that I wanted to bring up. What? Also, and it might be one of the two. Is it The Rising? The Rising is one of those, yes. Yes. Because we talked about 9-11. I had to go listen to The Rising. Uh-huh. And what is the other one? The other one is Phrenology. Oh, wow. 
I've been listening to a lot of music, so I've been going all over the board lately. But that is, for some reason, that's a random album that I ended up with the CD of at some point, and love that album, and in particular the Seed Two Point the Seed Two Point oh, oh, that's the best song. Yeah, with Cody Chestnut, and yeah. and also the first Cody Chestnut album came out in two thousand two. So yeah. Oh. Hold on, I, I wanted to do a little bit of comparison between two lyrics because I was listening to Till I Collapse. So I remember I didn't I was done with rap music by two thousand two, basically, like mainstream rap music. I was like, I'm not interested in this at all as a genre. But I remember I had a burnt C D probably from Chris, maybe from Mitchell Dillard, of the Eminem show, I think it was called. Yes. And I listened to it and I was like, this is all fine. Everything in here is just fine. And then I hear that and it's like that. And you're just like, oh, fuck. And then it just it hits you so hard. Right. And it was like I heard it and I was like, oh, this is the best Eminem song. And it's kind of crazy how things catch up over time. Where now if you go to Spotify, like this is the number one song. If you would have told me in 2002 that this was going to be the number one Eminem song on Spotify, I would have never believed you. Because I was like, there's huge songs, right? Yeah. Like, the 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 songs from the previous records, where I was like, my name is, like, no song will ever top that, you know? The real Slim Shady. But those, I, I feel like because of the fact that they were more... I don't want to say gimmicky, but they're sort of in that realm. Whereas Till I Collapse is more like timeless. Yes. I am surprised that Stan is not on this top ten at all. I mean, obviously, a lot of a lot of it is taken up by uh, his newest release. But uh... I wanted to compare the Eminem talking about on that track because he's like, "When your run is over, just admit it when it's at its end." And it's like, <laughs> I don't compare that to Rosa Parks where. Andre's rapping about like how his favorite rappers don't aren't good anymore. I thought he had a line about he hope it never comes to him or whatever. By the way, is the blueprint to the gift and the curse? Does that fall under the sequels in two thousand two? Oh my god, <laughs> the sequels of two thousand two were very very bleak. Okay, so the the other record that you listen to in the rising and. Look, this is not Bruce Springsteen's best music ever, but for us as a gateway to Bruce Springsteen's music, this was a gateway. But this was the most important record. We were excited, like we had gone back to Bruce Springsteen's catalog, I'm sure by this point. But we were excited to have a Springsteen album that we could experience with everyone else. Does that make sense? Kind of. I don't know how many other people were experiencing the rising of Tai High School in 2002. <laughs> By everyone else, do you mean you? And for you, you mean me? Like, there's nobody like the else in the world who's listening to the Rolling Stone magazine. Like, yes, there we go. They were very stoked about it. But th- this, to me, was like, I think I probably got Born to Run. Springsteen's first number and... one album on the U.S. pop albums. <sighs> God, I I got Born to Run. I think probably from Best Buy from six for six ninety nine or whatever. And I was like, oh, this is really cool, and I like it. And then the Rising came out, and it was like Christmas Day. I got it. I got it for Christmas. Do you remember this? Not specifically. And I put it in the CD player yeah, or whatever. Not in July. You waited that long. That's how long it took to hear new music in two thousand and two. <laughs> it really didn't. Like the fucking you, Rolling you, Stone only came out two like. 
every two weeks. I heard fucking Paranoid by Black Sabbath 50 years later in 2002. Well, true, but the only way you'd find out is if the pilot came over the intercom. <laughs> oh, we've got the uh, Rising by Bruce Springsteen on your left here. <laughs> no, it was just like... <laughs> I got it for Christmas because you didn't get music immediately in 2002. That's not the way it worked. The Rising wasn't played on the radio. I think I started to get Rolling Stone magazine. I remember the first ever Rolling Stone I read, there was a review of Yoshimi Battles, the Pink Robots, by Flaming Lips, which is maybe the only band who's re- released their best album in 2002, aside from Interpol. And, like, I remember reading that review, and it was, like, sort of lukewarm, because that's what Rolling Stone would do, because it's fucking Rolling Stone, and they're not going to be impressed by Flaming Lips in 2002 until they get popular. And it was, like... I was like, oh, this seems like kind of interesting music. And then I could never hear it or whatever until it was in a Microsoft commercial three years later. (laughs) It's not like I had a means to go and listen to the Flaming Lips. Have you just been sitting here on this pilot voice the entire time? (laughs) I can't wait to bring that back at some point. Okay, so I also think 2002 was the year that killed mainstream rap music for me. I've I felt this way way beyond Let's Remember Some Years. The thing that I hate the most in all of music for my entire life, and I hate a lot of things about mainstream music in my entire life, is Jaw Rule and Ashanti. <laughs> and it's wow. just like, Jaw Rule thinks that he fucking cracked the code, right? Where it's like, it's so shameless, right? Where it's like, Ja Rule's going to rap his little bullshit rap, and then there's going to be like the pop hook. And this is the worst music that ever existed. I swear to God, indie rap became a thing. I think God Loves Ugly by Atmosphere came out in 2002 also. But like, indie rap became a thing because of how fucking bad Ja Rule is. Also quality, which we haven't talked about Dave Chappelle, we will in a couple of years, but... Quality by Talib Quality came out in 2002 also, which has the Dave Chappelle intro. Let I'm... me read you the Billboard year-end Hot 100 singles of 2002 through number 12, because that's when we get to fucking Ja Rule and Ashanti. Let me just ask you if any of these you would objectively call a good song. I think I have one objection, at least. Number one, How You Remind Me by Nickelback. Is that your objection? <laughs> no. Foolish by Ashanti, Hot and Her by Nelly. That's my exception. Okay, and, no, that's it's fine. Like, remember hot, the radio station that played Hot and was that Hot and Here? Hot and what Her. Radio station? There was the radio station that played a Nelly song on repeat as part of like the promotion for their changeover to R and B or hip hop, and because of how bad 2002 was. Then no, no, this was like within the last five years, and then oh everyone went and listened to it. It Dil- must not Dil- have been that. Dilemma by Nelly featuring Kelly Rowland. Okay. Wherever You Will Go by The Calling. A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton. In the End by Linkin Park. What's Love by Fat Joe featuring Ashanti. You Got It Bad by Usher. Blurry that's, by that's Puddle of Mud. Blurry by Puddle of Mud was number 10. Are you hearing this? I'm hearing it. Complicated by Avril Lavigne. And at number 12, Always on Time by Ja Rule featuring Ashanti. 
That was six years ago that San Francisco radio station KVVF repeated. Well, I God, I hope they folded. Like, there is not a good song in the top 20 of the Billboard Hot 100 songs of 2002. Like, the best case scenario, you've gotten to like, all right, I can stomach that. Right? Like, how? I, and look, we haven't looked at this for every year, so maybe it's always terrible. But like, none of these artists release their best song, even if you like the artist. Yeah, I would agree with that. Must be the money. Uh, 2002. You, you got it's a good song. Although that a, actually came out a, in 2001. So there you go. There you and, go. And a lot of these songs came out in 2001. <laughs> uh, 2002, it goes all the way through to My Sacrifice by Creed at number 20. Okay. But like, the, yeah. the, the, it's just, it's bad. It I, is bad. I agree. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if we have any objections, because I feel like if you were like, eh, nah, I don't know, maybe it'll be interesting to see if anyone objects. To 2002 being a good year? Yeah. Cameron put out a pretty good album. <laughs> but like, I I just... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I looked up 2002 in television. Let's see what we got. Survivor? Was it the first year of Survivor? No, that must have been earlier. I didn't really notice anything notable in terms of coming or going in 2002 in in television. Yeah, it because up. it was a fucking horrible year. It was not a great year. It was the first Again, year of American Idol, so... Definitely better than 2002. And the first year of The Bachelor. Well, this was the year that brought us Monk. <laughs> Shots to Monk. Let's see what our good friends at HipHopGoldenAge.com have to say about the year 2002. I, I'm guessing there's going to be a lot of to live quality. Quality. I mean, not a lot of it because they're doing albums now, right? Yes. There there actually are some good albums that came out in 2002. But this was the year J-Live at number one, who I've also never heard of. All of the Above by J-Live. Number two, Mr. Lift's I Phantom, uh, a Def Jux release. Number three, The Lost Tapes by Nas. Uh, so that would be like a Nas B-Sides record. Number four, we had the Eminem show, as previously mentioned. Number five, Scarface is The Fix. There's a couple more. Oh, Jurassic Five's Power Numbers, which is a good album. I re- this is probably the first year that I learned who Jurassic Five was because of 120 Minutes was happening in 2002. So that's something. Blazing Arrow by Blacklicious was really good. The God's Son came out. It's just like – and then and number nine was Quality by Tulip Quality. <clears throat> Even still, it's not like – I'm not blown away by these, right? Yeah, 2002 fucking sucks. And oh, and phrenology was at number ten. I don't feel like I knew Jurassic. Eh, maybe in 2002. God bless that blaze. Number thirteen. <clears throat> this this was definitely like indie rap was starting to become a big thing by 2002 because of how bad Jaw Rule and Ashanti are. <laughs> Where is Jaw? I swear to God, it was just like. I remember hearing that song for the first time, and I was like, all right, I'm done with the radio. I'm good. <laughs> yeah, you never turn on the radio again. I was like, it, no, there was, I will talk about this later. There was a year where I came back to mainstream rap music in 2008 or so. I mean, I think you came out back for the Black Album, but okay. Uh, I really didn't. I mean, I don't know. Hmm. I mean, We'll I mean, talk I came, about the black. I actually there, came there, back for the gray album, but again, we're going to talk about that. We'll talk. We'll talk about the black and the gray album later. But like, what you know by Ti, I was like, I remember we were watching that BT Awards at Katie's Now Your House, and I was like, 
hearing what you know about that, I was like, oh shit. <laughs> I was like, wow. That's what it took. I was like, damn, rap music's good again. All right, follow tip. Should we talk about, about contemporary that. sports? Mm, nah. To the extent that there are, uh, well, there's there's some updates aside from the Seahawks. Uh, the NHL Seattle group, in a letter to fans from CEO Todd Lewicki, he said, uh, we will wait to begin general seat selection, and we look for the right time to reveal our team name, which you'll recall was originally reported to be announced in March 